This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwold, with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. For this episode, I talk to Duncan Lucas, civil engineering student with a minor in energy and environmental studies and project leader for sustainable development projects in Ethiopia. I asked him about what a microgrid is and what he's been working on implementing renewable microgrids in developing countries to provide renewable energy to small communities and villages. The projects he's working on are really cool. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Duncan. You are a civil engineer. You have a minor in energy and environment. You've worked on sustainability projects here in Canada, as well as Morocco and Ethiopia. You've been going to U of C, and this project that we're going to talk about today is actually through their capstone design project from the engineering program there. What you've been working on is a solar microgrid in Ethiopia. Is that right? Do you want to give me a, a little bit of a breakdown of what that's about? That's right. Yeah. So I, I, I do have to make one correction because I'm not a civil engineer. I'm a civil engineering student. Yeah. So the solar microgrid project. When I was working in Ethiopia in 2019, you know, I was working on just this uh, uh, very detailed application of a solar water pump. So that's to help farmers you know just to lift water from their wells so they can irrigate more land and they can have you know more income and more food security and the pilot program we were running was just one solar panel connected to a, a water pump that they could sort of carry around with them but of course you know there's a there's a very strong demand to have more electrical service in that right like in these villages there was no other electrical service whatsoever no transmission lines no other solar panels contrast that with you know in canada where we have virtually unlimited electricity like whenever you want it you switch a light on and it's there as much as you want and so i was thinking well how do we transition from having no electricity or single solar panel to having this comprehensive national grid like we have in canada that's a you know it's a huge investment took 100 years basically to put together in canada and i saw the the microgrid as being a, a realistic intermediary step so the idea there is in this single village, you can have generation, we have solar panels laid up, you have the hardware and the wiring to distribute that across the houses of the village, and storage as well for batteries. So it's like a self-contained system without the investment of a national grid. Now, over time, my sort of grand vision is that we can roll out these microgrids on a really large scale across Ethiopia. So villages start getting their own microgrids and communities start getting, you know, sort of larger and larger microgrids. And they can grow over time, right? They're modular. You can add more solar panels. You can add more loads to the system as people, their demand for electricity increases. And those can grow over time, sort of like a little spider web growing. And that starts to connect to all the other spider webs, interconnected national grid that way. My next question was going to be, uh, what is a microgrid? But you pretty much sum that up right there. I think the key, maybe the key to these microgrids is that modular function of them. So the ability to put pieces in and take pieces out pretty easily. 
So how does that work? Can you just connect up extra solar panels or batteries whenever you want because it's been made in a way that allows for that? Or what do you have to do to integrate a new resource once you're starting to grow that microgrid? So again, I'll emphasize just for anyone who's listening who isn't very familiar with the electricity grid, you know, this microgrid, it's it's not connected to the national grid like a house in Canada is. So you can think of it as kind of off-grid, like some people have a cabin with solar panels that generate just for that house. So it's kind of like that on a bigger scale, right? It's self-contained and it's not connected to any other electricity generation elsewhere in the country. And yeah, the scalability and the modularity was a very important design goal for us because we want this to be like a flexible solution over time. And so that does factor into design. I won't get too much into like the technical design, but basically you can add in what's called a string of solar panels. So just a, a line of solar panels. And we designed it so you can add them in groups of five. So you can add kind of five solar panels at a time. And you basically just like add a wire and tack those five solar panels on. And so in that way, you can you know increase your generation. And the same is true for the batteries. We can add another string of batteries, which are, are two battery string. You can just sort of wire those up and tack them on. And so as people, you know, in their house, they want to brighter light or they get a computer or they get, you know, whatever it is, that's increasing the load. And that's pretty straightforward, right? You just plug it into your outlet and we can increase the demand. The one caveat to that is at a certain point, you do have to upgrade some of your other hardware. One of the most expensive parts is the inverter and rectifier. So the inverter transforms the direct current electricity from the solar panels into alternating current, which is what appliances use. And that can only handle a certain amount of power. So if you add a number of more strings, you can either upgrade your inverter or actually design a system, you can even add a separate inverter. So you just have two inverters now and again, you're not replacing it. So you can still tack pieces on as you go. It does have to be engineered. It's not just willy-nilly, you're throwing stuff together, but it's, it's a pretty straightforward calculation. Yeah, that's definitely going to be important for those communities that are pretty far away from any base support system or anything like that. So I saw through everything you sent me on this that the electrification rate of Ethiopia is 23% and the rural electrification is 8%. I mean, I didn't expect high numbers for Ethiopia having electricity, but that was even lower than I thought. Those numbers are low, but what does that mean? Why is electricity important for these developing countries who are just starting to kickstart their economies and their communities? What are they lacking when they don't have electricity? And what are these microgrids adding to their communities? That's a really important question. It's obvious to us, we just want electricity. And I think you really need to justify why that is. So it's a very, very good question. There's a number of things that electricity does. One of the big interests is in education. So even something as simple as lighting, for example, having a light in your home to sort of study into the evening can help you know, children potentially there in school during the day or working during the day, which can be quite common in these countries. They have the capacity to study later in the evening. And contrast that with, you know, right now, a lot of lighting is from like naphtha lamps or kerosene lamps, which burn this oil, which is really not very clean. When you have a sort of a, a lamp like that in a small hut, the emissions from burning it can be bad for your health when you inhale it. And then you can scale it up to, well, if you have a school in a community, we want to have computers potentially for people to study on, to work on. And, you know, a computer and the internet can be a huge, like an incredible way to access information and knowledge from all over the world, right? Which otherwise you wouldn't necessarily be able to see 
So that's sort of one example is education. The same is true for healthcare. You know, if you set up a clinic in a small village or a hospital in a larger community, a lot of that equipment and that healthcare equipment needs electricity. So education, healthcare, economics as well. Electricity is a tool, right? It's a tool that can be used to power machinery, to power services that help people make money. For example, I talked about the solar water pump. That was a very successful pilot program because, you know, currently people spend maybe two, three, four hours a day. They lift water by hand, usually with a bucket on a rope from a well. And they spend all that time just to water their fields. But with the pump, it happens much faster. So they can irrigate a larger field and they can grow more cash crops or things like chilies or tomatoes. Specifically for our grid, we looked at, like I said, the lighting, which can be very good for you know studying and other applications. And we also included a refrigerator. And that was something that was requested by villagers when I interviewed them. With the refrigerator, they can harvest their tomatoes and then they can store them for a while and wait for the price to go up. And then when they sell them at market, they get a better price for it. Which is very valuable. And that's something that we do in the West as well, like through grain silos or large-scale refrigeration. Farmers store this material to sell it at a good price so they can make money. That's very important in Canada and it's equally important there. So it has very broad applications. And then looking down the future as well, again, you know, computers, industrial machinery, you know, whatever it is, whether services we have in Canada, you can achieve the same thing there. So that being said, we've gone through the importance of energy. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want you to just go a little bit deeper into it. What is wrong with integrating the big utility scale grids, the national grids that can power the whole country? Everyone's connected. It's like one or two centralized power sources. What are the drawbacks of that? So the, the number one drawback for a community like Dangla that we were, we were working for for our project is it's a very small community. It's about 15 to 20 kilometers from the nearest sort of electrified town, which doesn't sound like very much. But paying to install the transmission lines to reach this village is very expensive. I mean, the minimum, like the bare minimum cost for transmission lines would probably be around 3,000 US dollars per kilometer. It's usually a lot higher than that in five figures, like the tens of thousands of dollars. So that's, it's, it's just prohibitively expensive to spend that much money, tens of thousands of dollars to deliver electricity to 40 or 50 people. It's just not affordable. So that's one big barrier. Another issue is, so right now in Ethiopia, more than 90% of the energy comes from hydropower. So hydroelectric dams, same as like in BC and, and uh, Manitoba and Quebec, have a lot of hydro dams. So that is actually, you know, very low emissions type of energy. So that's good. However, there are other associated issues with that. So in Ethiopia, you may have heard there's a, a lot of debate and this big international conflict, basically, over the dam between Ethiopia and Egypt. So they have this uh, Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam, which is a huge dam on the Nile River, which would produce a lot of energy, but it's restricting water flow to Egypt. And so there's, there's like a huge diplomatic incident in that Egypt is worried they're not going to have enough water for their own needs. And Ethiopia is like, well, we're upriver and we need this water for electricity. So that can be an issue. Also with hydropower, with climate change and changing weather patterns and climate patterns, uh, particularly it's predicted there could be more periods of drought and more intensive drought. Obviously, if you don't have enough rainfall, you can't fill up your reservoirs. Don't want to write off hydropower is a good technology, but the, the microgrid offers an alternative to that, right? A backup to that. 
you know, the solar panel as well as no greenhouse gas emissions at the point of use and very low life cycle emissions. So particularly if it's replacing something in a country like a coal-fired power plant, a natural gas power plant, the health and environmental benefits are very, very strong. Again, it's that modularity. It's, it's really easy to install compared to the grid. And one more thing as well in Ethiopia, we've seen with the, the recent conflict between sort of the various states and the central government centralized utility scale generation for electricity infrastructure like transmission lines generators have been targeted as part of the warfare some armies are destroying that to you know weaken their enemy basically having a small scale distributed generation system like the microgrid makes that a lot more resistant to conflict and destruction you're not going to go way out of the way to destroy this one village's power supply you mentioned the transmission, which was the big point I wanted to get into because transmission is incredibly expensive to get up and running. And you also touched on the vulnerability of centralized resources. So if there's anything else that makes microgrids better, feel free to add that in now. That was, that was my next question. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm preempting, or I guess I'm sorry I'm preempting all your questions, but clearly you're... Uh... We're on the same page here. Maybe I could give like uh, a, a number. So from our analysis, we were able to get a levelized cost of electricity, basically the cost over the entire life cycle. So an average what you pay dollars per kilowatt hour, which is like a unit of energy. For our microgrid, it was around 30 cents per kilowatt hour, which is high. It's like higher than the rate you would pay in Calgary for electricity. And the, the grid tariff is only about $0.12 cents per kilowatt hour. So it sounds like ours is more expensive. You probably don't really have any knowledge on how electricity pricing works. We usually just pay our bills and continue on with our life, and that's fine. But when we look at developing new infrastructure and systems, it's important to evaluate what's the most cost-effective method of doing that, especially in places under economic stress. The LCOE levelized cost of electricity that Duncan mentions refers to a kind of summary metric, taking into account many different factors of an energy system in order to determine the average price per kilowatt hour. This can include things like the cost of the system itself, the cost of maintenance, and fuel costs. You then divide that total cost by the estimated total energy you will produce. Total cost of a project is like $200, and the total electricity it will produce over its lifespan is 1,000 kilowatt hours, the LCOE would be 50 cents per kilowatt hour. A kilowatt hour is a measure of electricity that's equal to running 1,000 watts of electricity for one hour, or a 100 watt light bulb for 10 hours. It's really confusing, I know. The grid tariff, on the other hand, is basically what a utility would charge you in your home, the price to buy electricity. The problem with comparing the two, as Duncan says in just a second here, is that there's a lot more cost for things like maintenance and building transmission that has to be included in the LCOE of the national grid option. In other words, you have to compare levelized cost with levelized cost, not levelized cost with the grid tariff price. But when we factor in cost of inflation over time, because basically this microgrid is investment immediately, and also when we factor in the transmission costs, like the most conservative, lowest cost to build the transmission infrastructure I could find, the LCOE of the grid was about 90 cents per kilowatt hour. So three times more than our microgrid. You know, that's just based on our analysis. 
other papers and other sort of larger research groups have determined as well. There are places in, in sub-Saharan Africa where the grid is most cost-effective if it's a town that's very close to an existing electricity source. But for a lot of these regions, the microgrid is the most cost-effective solution. You went through this a little bit at the beginning, but what is your microgrid doing to fill the needs of this community? We know they need economic, social, and education development, and then further down the line, things like healthcare and everything else. What were the things that your microgrid is doing that has added quality of life, infrastructure, and opportunity to the village of Dangla? So when I was there, I visited the site to do some, some research and, uh, and to test the, the solar water pumping system. And I interviewed the villagers. So I asked them, well, what sort of services do you, do you want and would be interesting to you? And so number one was lighting. People really wanted lighting. And that's just useful for a lot of reasons, you know, safety, education, just being able to work or interact with each other in the evenings a lot more easily. I don't know if you've ever been camping, for example, but even not having a headlamp for a few days camping like makes life really difficult. So imagine that all the time, right? And then the other one that, that was very popular is people wanted a TV. That was a little challenging for us because I, I did question, well, what's the, the broad value of the television? Like, it's entertainment, yes, but is this, you know, really going to help the development of the village? I struggle with that a little bit, but, um, you know, part of electricity as well is just bringing sort of modern convenience to people and that sort of thing. And that, that was something they wanted. So we made this community center with a television so it could also serve as like a social setting. You know, people could watch football, soccer matches, which are very popular in Ethiopia, as a group or watch movies or whatever. They could watch sort of educational material on the TV or connect the TV to PowerPoints or whatever, you know, for educational purposes down the line as well. And it could be a space for studying, for shared studying. So that was sort of the, the more social impact. And then I also mentioned the fridge already. Those are the main things we're looking at is lighting, fridge, TV, and also the, the water pump. Really useful and popular appliance. I have a question. Why solar power? Why not wind or small modular hydro or any of these other technologies? Why have you gone with solar? That's an excellent question. So you can have a microgrid just instead of solar panels. You have wind turbines. Like you say, you could have a combination. You can also have, and we see this in Canada and BC, micro hydro. So like a very small hydro dam or even a run of river. So it's just a turbine that sits in a river. The other, the other really popular choice, and this has traditionally been big in so developing countries, has been a diesel microgrid. So you have a diesel generator that you run in power appliances. We rejected diesel for a number of reasons. The main one was the environmental cost, because of course the diesel has greenhouse gas emissions when you use it, as well as other emissions like sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, which are harmful to human health. Also, diesel, in our analysis, and we checked this, was much more expensive than solar in pretty much all applications. And we did a sensitivity for like a very high efficient diesel generator. We did it for a really low price of diesel, like 50 cents per liter. And even at that stage, it was, you know, over the long term, more expensive than solar panel. And of course, diesel is sort of an unreliable fuel source in terms of delivery to these remote areas. And again, the price could fluctuate a lot. So if 10 years down the line, you know, diesel has a huge price spike, well, they're not going to be able to afford it. So the upfront investment of solar is high, but then you have pretty much that guaranteed electricity over time. 
Now, in terms of comparing with other renewable options, like the hydro and the wind, basically, it's all down to the resource. If a solar resource is very strong and very consistent, you know, often over 1000 watts per meter squared in terms of the solar irradiance, the power from the sun coming down onto the land. Here, Duncan gives me just the very quick definition of what solar irradiance is, but I thought you might want to know a little bit more than that. Solar irradiance is, like he says, the amount of energy coming from the sun in different waveforms and proton particles. The proton particles in these waves from the sun is what actually generates electricity in our photovoltaic solar panels. It's measured in watts per meter squared, the total energy available for capture in each square meter. The particles that generate electricity then go through processes within the panel and create that electricity. The efficiency of solar panels sits at around 20% right now, which may seem low, but that number is consistently increasing very quickly, allowing us to capture more solar energy. So now let's try to apply the eternally confusing units of energy and electricity to this idea. If the sun is radiating 1000 watts per square meter onto a 1 square meter solar panel and the efficiency of the energy conversion is 20%, that means the panel is producing 200 watts of electricity. That's a constant number, 200 watts every moment. If you were to run that for 5 hours, it will have produced 1 kilowatt hour of electricity. That 1 kilowatt hour can then be used to run an appliance for a total of 1 kilowatt hour of electricity. So a 100 watt light bulb for 10 hours, or a 1000 watt water pump for 1 hour. I know it's hard to understand, so I hope that made some kind of sense. Anyway, we were talking about the cost of a microgrid versus integrating with the national grid. It was low in the rainy season in August. That was the one barrier. But overall, there was a lot more energy potential from solar than from wind in this region. Also, there wasn't a hydro source nearby. There was no river nearby. I would say for some regions, depending a lot on the weather. If it's a bit cloudier or stormier, but you have a lot of wind. So for example, in like Scotland, a wind microgrid could make a lot more sense or potentially even a combination of the two, right? Like Australia has sort of started having a bit of a combination of solar and wind microgrids. And for hydro as well, it's a little more expensive to set up a hydro turbine and it's not as modular either, which is a barrier. But for a larger community, that can make sense if you have, you know, a good resource nearby. So it's all about, and that, that's, that's a big part of the engineering that comes into it, is analyzing the different resources, the weather, the load, the demand profiles, and saying, okay, like, this resource makes the best sense. For this village, it was, it was solar. That's good because solar is also, of course, completely renewable, unlike the diesel. Exactly. And it's cheap. Like, it's, it's a really good resource. <laughs> it, works, it works well. So what do you see for the future of energy and electricity, not only in developing countries where microgrids are going to be a, a big part of it, but also developed countries? Do you think that we're going to continue on this path of the big centralized, not necessarily fossil fueled anymore, but big centralized wind, solar, hydro plants? Or are we going to transition to more microgrids that can be more distributed and self-sustaining? Yeah, very, very interesting question. I haven't tracked really carefully, like, sort of the economics, the practicality of that in Canada and developing countries. So this is a bit of speculation. You know, the advantage of centralized generation, utility scale generation, so these, these big solar farms, uh, you can get good economies of scale in terms of installing it, drill a lot, of, a lot of holes all at one time, put a lot of posts in, and put a lot of solar panels on top of those posts. 
And then we have already a lot of infrastructure for transmission in place. So we don't have to build an entire new transmission line. If you build a little bit of transmission line, then you add on to what, what's there already. So there are definitely benefits that I think we'll continue to see a lot of utility scale stuff. I do think there's a lot of potential for distributed generation. Even uh, uh, residential rooftop solar is a form of distributed generation. So when I say distributed, I mean like we're talking about a lot of different generations, so spread out over an area as opposed to sort of centralized in one utility project, utility scale project. You know, rooftop solar is becoming a little bit more popular in Calgary. Calgary is actually one of the sunniest cities in Canada. And I think we'll start to see more and more people, as prices go down, and as it starts to make economic sense, they see, okay, after owning this for 10 years, I'll start to make money back instead of paying money from the electricity grid. We'll see more people installing rooftop solar. We'll see businesses installing solar as well on their, you know, on their headquarters or on their facilities, again, for cost benefits. And also, I'd say for PR reason, if you can sort of point at your headquarters and say, oh, look at our you know, big solar project, like we're so environmentally friendly, that helps them a lot. Sound like a bit of a cynical statement. I mean, it is still worthwhile. But realistically, I mean, companies influenced by like social pressure from people, which is actually a good thing in this example, because we're seeing companies, you know, like Amazon's investing in a big solar project in Alberta. Budweiser is, I think, TC Energy, which is an oil company, they're investing um, and building like a solar generator. Those are industrial scale ones, but sort of the principle is the same. I think we'll see a combination of the two. And again, they could be integrated together, right? They can all connect together to the national grid. And I'd say the same is true for developing countries. I think there's a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit for microgrids, pretty inexpensive solutions for larger communities that are off the grid right now. And then we can see those integrate as well into the national grid as the national grid expands and as the microgrids expand. So I think you're kind of attacking it from two directions, and that's a good thing, right? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, that we're going to need both, but that's a good thing that we can have both. I talk a lot on this podcast about distributed versus centralized energy, and then there's the whole residential, industrial, commercial energy too. So let's straighten out those terms so that we're on the same page. Distributed and centralized are the overarching terms, which the others fall under. Distributed energy or distributed generation is when the power source for an electricity grid is spread out. Many sources feed into the grid from different places, maybe a hydro plant on a river, a small natural gas generator in the countryside, and a bunch of rooftop solar in the suburbs. These sources all get transferred onto transmission lines, which carry the energy wherever it's needed. Centralized electricity generation is when all of the power used by an area comes from one source. This could be a massive coal plant powering an entire city or province, or a huge hydropower dam generating enough electricity for a large portion of California and Nevada. All of the electricity is generated in one place, and it is then carried outward from that source by transmission lines to wherever it's needed. The other terms fall under these. Residential power is typically quite small scale and generated by a single household, solar panels on the roof for example, And that's similar to commercial generation. Commercial generation is usually a bit bigger. Commercial electricity production is usually done by a business, either on a building that they own, or using land or buildings that they lease specifically for electricity generation. Both produce power for their own means, and any excess can then be sold to the grid. Another difference is that residential systems usually cover a household's own electricity and perhaps sell a little bit back to the grid 
whereas commercial generation is usually done with the intent of generating enough electricity to actually make money. The episode I did with Jesse Lane a few weeks ago talks about commercial energy production quite a bit, so check that one out if you want to learn a bit more. And finally, utility-scale electricity generation. This one falls under the category of centralized power. It's the source of energy for national good projects, the big plants that are usually commissioned by the government itself, that generate massive amounts of energy and implement transition to move that power around wherever it needs to go. And about the companies, it might seem like it's a bit slimy that companies are just doing some of this stuff for the PR, but it's also kind of good to see that the public can actually have an impact on these big companies. If we care, then they're going to care because they depend on us to buy from them. They need our sales. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's, that's very important. We're starting to see that occurring in Alberta, which traditionally and still is you know, very oil and gas centric. But we're starting to see, you know, even these oil and gas companies start to say, yes, we kind of agree with decreasing emissions. Or I think it was the Petroleum Council in America said, yes, we support a carbon tax now. And a lot of that is because now, again, they're not, you know, saints, these companies, right? They still need to be held to account. But I think that's a, a very good sign that individual people and communities who care about the environment, you're not just shutting into a void. Okay, well, I think that pretty much sums up my more in-depth questions. I just have a couple questions that I want you to answer as fast as you can. All right, let's go. First question, what was your most interesting project you've worked on, Canada, Morocco, or Ethiopia? I have to say Ethiopia. This is a very important point I'll get across quickly here. Is, you know, we hear all about developing countries or you see pictures of like African villages on TV with electricity. To go there and to see it is a totally different experience. To work with Ethiopian researchers, Ethiopian farmers, Ethiopian villagers was such an impactful experience. And to see the nexus basically between energy and international development and environmental protection like the combination of those things, was so inspiring. And it was one of the most important experiences of my entire life. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. It was really hard when I was there. It was hard work. But what, one of the most important work or education experiences of my entire life. That's so cool. That's so cool. All right, next question. Research or implementation? There are two sides of the same coin. They're both so important. You have to implement the research you make, but you need research so the implementation makes sense. So both are equally valuable. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know how to answer. No, no, that's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Next question, and I have an idea of where this is going to go, but rate the importance of energy for developing countries on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being not important at all and 10 being absolutely essential. It's high. I'd say it's like a seven or maybe an eight. You know, the, maybe the one more urgent need is, you know, conflict when people are in conflict and being displaced by war or ethnic conflict and they're moving to refugee camps or they're, they're being displaced in their homes. The electricity service isn't really helping them immediately at that point. Electricity is most valuable when there's stable security. It can help with security and it can help with healthcare and all these other things. So it's still very important. Next question has a little bit to do with the last one. If there's one thing that we should focus on to ensure the sustainable development of the developing countries around the world, what would it be? Oof, challenging question. 
I think the most important thing is to is to work together across fields. So engineers tend to sort of stay with en- engineering. And, you know, a comprehensive solution to the the energy problem takes engineering, takes sociology, it takes business and economics, it takes activists, politicians, it takes everyone, and collaboration between all these groups to really deliver the solution. Collaboration, that's the big one. And this is the last question for you. Given your experiences, what you've seen in your own work and just in general around the around the world, do you think that we will be able to globally decarbonize enough so that we can meet carbon neutrality goals by 2050? I really do believe that is possible. The technology we have is is really quite strong and it's working really well. I mean, solar energy is working well. There are technological constraints still. Storage is a big issue, but I think absolutely the potential is there. I think the biggest barrier is lesser technology, but actually social and political will to make it happen. I think we can do it. I think it is achievable, but it's not just going to happen by itself. We do have to drive that change because any like change is almost always hard, whether it's in your individual life or in society. So you have to make it happen. I 100% agree with that. That seems to be a common thread with the people who come on this show is that we can do it. We need to work for it. If we do work for it, it's going to work out. But we need to put in the work right now. One thing I'll add on that is I know your podcast is is for people who feel hopeless and feel, you know, like they're, what can you do? And it is very daunting to just say, we have to reach net zero by 2050 or, or what have you. Break it down into an individual project, right? Like if you can uh, work on a solar panel system for a school, an elementary school in Alberta, boom, that's renewable energy. That is part of the solution. It's not something one person solves all in one fell swoop. It's pieces here and there. It's people all over the world working on their own individual parts. And that comes together as a whole, you know, before you know it, the whole world will be more renewable. So just break it down and any small thing you can do, it counts. That's great advice. I love that. Is there somewhere that people can find you and your project if they want to learn more about this? Oh, we do have the little website link I sent you. You can look at Hope Ethiopia. Strongest Oak Foundation is also based in Calgary. And they're NGOs who do focus on this type of work as well. Well, thanks for coming on. It's really cool what you're doing in, in all your work in the microgrids. It's truly fascinating stuff. So thanks for sharing that with me. Best of luck. I, I think it'll be successful. and You're taking action. That was a great conversation with Duncan Lucas, budding civil engineer and sustainable project developer. Microgrids are honestly just so cool to me. The increased control, involvement, and visibility that decentralized energy brings is so interesting and such a great option for communities who can't afford to integrate with utility-scale energy grids. Links to Hope Ethiopia and the Strongest Oak Foundation will be in the show notes below. They're doing some very interesting work that you can check out there. Also follow our socials that will be in the show notes, and don't hesitate to reach out with your comments or questions. I hope this episode was as fascinating to you as it was for me. If you liked it, share it with one person who you think would get something good out of it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Stay innovative. I'll see you on the next one.